is a time and a place for creativity and it's all the time but it's within parameters because at the end of the day we're companies we're commercial enterprises and we're trying to sustain ourselves so if you just focus on creativity and didn't have any processes in place your clients wouldn't get reported to you wouldn't collect money you wouldn't like call them in the right time you just wouldn't have a business you we'd just all be messing around updating facebook statuses and it wouldn't actually be a company it would just be just wasting time so i feel like the systems and the processes allows for more of the creativity because it takes care of the stuff that's just the admin that wouldn't get done otherwise Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and this week on the show, we have a bit of a unique episode, but tackles a perennial pain point that most business owners face, which is how to implement systems within your company. And joining John on the podcast today for the second time is Jody Cook. Now, Jody was one of the most popular episodes of the last year, and that's due in part to her ability to sell her service business for 100% cash upfront without an earnout. Now, last time on the show, Jody touched on how she systematized her business, but I wanted to invite Jody back on the show so she could give you her specific advice on how she created systems. I wanted to go beyond a superficial reference to systems, which you've likely heard here before, and go deeper to explain exactly how and what she did to get her service business to run without her. Now, if you want to go back and listen to round one with Jody, which I would highly, highly recommend, I will link that episode in the show notes page, along with some other resources on systems that I hope that you will find helpful over at builttosell.com. Here to share her expertise with John today is Jody Cook. Enjoy. Jody Cook, welcome back to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, thanks for having me back. I'm trying to think, I don't think we've ever had a returning guest. You might be cracking the seal. This is awesome. Whoa. <laughs> It's great though. We I wanted to have you back because you did something I don't think I've heard anybody ever do on this show, 350 episodes in or so, which is to sell a marketing services company without an earnout. I mean, that's virtually unheard of, right? Because services businesses like the assets go up and down the elevator every night. And so the, the acquirer tries to lock in the founder with a three-year, a five-year, even I've heard a seven-year earnout. And you got out of JC Media without an earnout. And so I really wanted to dig in today into less on the sale, and people can go back and listen to that episode if they want to hear about the sale, but more kind of how you set a services business up so that it could be sold. In particular, I want to drill into systems. Does that sound good? Yeah, great. And also, I've had awesome. so many amazing messages from people who have listened to the last episode and have taken on the tips and the things that we talked about in order to try and get their sale without an earnout. So I believe it's possible, and I believe that yeah, we can we can do this. We can get the right. We can get the steps in place in order to secure anyone a sale without an earnout. Awesome. Awesome. I want to dig in for sure 
Um, and again, it's one of our most popular episodes we've ever done was the first interview we did, we've done. So no, I, you know, not to create <laughs> heightened expectations, but <laughs> it's going to be great. So let's begin. So JC Media, if people listen to the first episode, they know you are a social media uh, marketing company. I'd be curious to know what triggered you in the first place to even want to create systems. Was there some sort of event that happened or something that made you want to create some systems? Yes. So it was back in autumn of 2014. And I realized that I'd set up a business to create freedom for myself. And I could not take a holiday. And I really wanted to take a holiday. So that was the trigger. It was, I, I, I kind of described that as the Jody show time. It was like everything ran by me. I was the bottleneck for every process in my business. I was doing sales, client work, prospect calls. I was Everything was me and there was just no getting out of it. And so when I was hit with this reality of, well, I want to go away for a bit, I just thought my whole business is going to come crashing down if I do. So that was the trigger for putting systems in place. It's funny because we're recording this in August of 2022 when a lot of people are on holiday, right? Or thinking about being on holiday, wishing they were on holiday. So the idea of a vacation triggering. The other one um, I've heard a lot about is just an extended leave, whether you're going to go on a sabbatical, maternity leave, you're going on a trip, like those, those, those times where you're just physically not in the office. And it's a good time to um, to, it's a, it's a good time that forces you into this realization that in your own case, it was the Jody show. Um, so I think that's, that's interesting. I guess I'd be curious to know where to start. Like what was the, what was your process for figuring out where to start? Cause systematizing for a lot of people think, they think, oh my gosh, where would I start? There's just hundreds of things that I do every day. I have no idea. Mm-hmm how to prioritize the big things, the small things, like what was your approach to starting this process? So the first thing I thought about was, do I have the right things in place to even start the process? And what I knew for sure is that I didn't want to start systemizing stuff that didn't really matter. And I didn't really want to just start systemizing when the business wasn't actually established or when we hadn't proven the concept. So Because I knew that we had a flagship product or service, so we just knew we were selling social media management. That was it. That was our one thing. It wasn't all these fancy periphery services. We knew that our target audience was marketing managers of companies of a certain size, and we knew that we reached them via networking. I felt like I had this foundation in place that meant I knew that if I just removed myself as a bottleneck, we could carry on growing, and I wouldn't be the blocker to the scale of the company. So... I guess where I started was at the very beginning of looking at my diary and seeing what I was doing all the time and then writing rows in a spreadsheet where each row signified the name of the process that existed. So it was like, if I looked at my diary, I was like, okay, what have I done today? I've done a prospect call. I've done payroll. I've sorted out some expenses. I've all these things. I just, I wrote them all down. So I was essentially time tracking and then that's when I started working out which of those processes should go to someone else or I should hire someone else to do or I should automate completely. I think after I'd finished writing down all all those processes, there was probably about 60. And then that's when I started turning each of those into a system 
with SOPs and started getting them out of my remit. I think I started at the ones so you where... Had Excel. No, I apologize for interrupting, but you had this Excel spreadsheet. You had the things that you were doing on one column. Were you actually tracking the time they each took as well? Yeah, I guess I was because my calendar is pretty up to date with I was doing this for an hour and then I was doing this for an hour and I would I was quite good at writing all that in. So yeah, so maybe maybe that's quite a, a big part of it. Work out for me to work out as the owner what I was actually doing and then write it all down in a spreadsheet and then work out who should do it. And then I think the hardest part actually was deciding the order that I should get things off my plate in because when it was all in front of me and it was 60 different rows, it looked like quite a big job. Whereas when I thought about it in terms of, okay, first I need to make sure that clients aren't always coming to me. They go to their account managers. And then I sort that out. Then I've got all this free time to then focus on getting the social media training sessions not done by, by me and hire a trainer. And then after that, it was hiring other people to do the sales process. So even though it looked like this huge task, I actually took it very much a step at a time. And each time I'd completed a stage, it freed me up even more. And then by the end of it, I had loads of time. It sounds like you were prioritizing the things that were sucking up the majority of your time first, and then going to the things that required less of your time. Am I correct in that assumption? Yes, yeah, definitely, because I had a team of social media managers and they were all doing the client work, but the clients were still report were still talking to me and I was still the main point of contact. It was almost like I had a bunch of assistants, which is just not conducive to a growing business at all. And also it wasn't really yeah. fun with the team because they were capable, they were doing good stuff. And at the time I just could not let go. So then once I started to let go, it empowered them to just get better. Our clients had better a better service and then it meant that I could move on to systemizing other stuff as well I'm glad you raised this issue of handing off clients because I think for a lot of service businesses in particular this is the hardest bit people can get their head around oh I got to create a standard operating procedures to send invoices or you know how to open the shop in the morning like all that so like, they kind of get that where they get tripped up is how do I get a, a loyal client for whom they've view me as their primary point of contact and transfer them over to an account manager. How did you do that? We had a lot of discussions about it. So we would think about our clients in terms of the different client personalities, I guess. And we would talk a lot about what they really wanted. And because it was quite simple, our clients were mainly marketing managers or they were entrepreneurs and those two separate types of people want kind of different stuff and they're different they want talking to in a different way and they're looking for different things so we talked quite a lot about client archetypes and how to speak to each one we had things like um we had things like if a client came in for a meeting the first five minutes of how you frame that meeting are really important so it was like don't talk to them about the traffic don't talk to them about an injury that they've got talk to them about something that they like talking about and make small talk about positive things so little stuff like that we tried to i tried to kind of take all the tacit knowledge that i had in my head of how to make a client feel comfortable and how to just get on with people and talk to my team about it as well and then they came up with their own ideas and then we put lists together of conversation starters or how to get a meeting after a great start. I think there was actually an SAP document that was actually just called how to open a meeting with a client. 
So it really was nuanced. We went into a lot of detail. I think um, a messy time that I remember is between me handing over client communication to account managers, but me, but when I was still doing the sales, because it meant that I was speaking to clients to sign them up, to get them on board and then handing them over. And that's when they'd be like, hang on, why aren't you in this meeting? You signed us up. And that was tough. That was, that was really tough. But then when I started delegating the sales, that was so much easier. And I became just a behind the scenes person rather than someone who was there and then wasn't there. Okay, I want to get back to sales because I think that's also another roadblock for a lot of our listeners is how do they hand off sales. Before we do that, I want to just finish this conversation about client management. And I'm just maybe personally curious to know what else was on your list of things, ways to start a meeting, ways to make a new client feel comfortable in the first five minutes. I've heard of a great technique, which is to talk about something positive. Like don't talk about you know negative things like the sports team who lost or the weather that sucks. It's like talk about something they're excited about, their kids, their, you know, something positive that's going on in the news, et cetera. So I get that. What else was on the list of like how to make the first five minutes magical? So how to make the first five minutes magical was all the stuff that we've talked about. And it was mainly getting someone into a positive, visionary headspace. We also did a lot around assertiveness because... What I knew for sure is that me as a business owner, like I know how to just, I know how to run a meeting. I know how to control a conversation. I know how to do all that stuff because it comes quite naturally, but maybe it didn't come naturally to all the account managers. So this was about how do you take control of this meeting and and not just sit there going, oh, what should, you know, what do you want us to do? You go, right, okay, I've done this, this, and this, and and you kind of control it. So one of the, one of the ways we got that to happen was in our weekly team meetings, we took it in turns to run the meeting. And so it was totally random. So sometimes a completely junior member of the team who maybe just joined that week, it was up to them to organize everything to chair the meeting. And we'd, we'd very much say like, boss everyone around, just go crazy. Like this is a super safe space for you to just go to town on this assertiveness. And it, was, it became quite fun. But then it meant that they had that practice in running a meeting, chairing a meeting, and then it became more natural for them to do that with a client as well. Because I think it felt like what clients really wanted was to trust that this person was going to look after their account. And you get that from from them running a meeting. Yeah. You mentioned there were two types of customers that you worked with. One was marketing managers, the other entrepreneurs. I'd be curious to know what the difference is to managing those types of uh, personalities. What makes an entrepreneur different than a marketing manager? (laughs) Okay. Well, I'd be interested to know if there are any other agency owners um, or former agency owners listening to this, but working with marketing managers, a lot of the time they want you to be their kind of they want you to be their trusted partner and they want to you, they want you to be someone who reassures them that they're on the right lines doing a good job and you're not getting them into trouble so your job with the marketing manager is to make them look good do a good job yourself of course but it has to be alongside them with the entrepreneur a lot of the time some of the amazing client client two entrepreneurs that we looked after they could really be erratic like they could they could flip from 
oh yeah, this is amazing. Everything's really cool to, well, actually my 14 year old told me that this is cool on social media now. Why aren't you doing this? We need to change everything. And so for a for an account manager at my agency, sometimes that was quite a lot to handle because they'd be like, hang on, I thought I thought we were on this path and now they're changing it. So it was just looking after different personality types and making someone aware that there were different personality types. So they weren't really confused when someone just dramatically changed their mind as many entrepreneurs do. Got it. Yeah, entrepreneurs often have what we refer to as shiny ball syndrome, right? Where there's a shiny ball and we get distracted by something off in the distance. And it can be hard to corral us into, uh, into a relationship and, and uh, you know, that's a challenge. I want to go back to something you said earlier. That's also something that was probably in one of the manual documents around what to do if your entrepreneur client changes their mind, <laughs> because it happens a lot. And it could be that you're, you're down the road with this really cool strategy. You're doing all this good stuff. You know that it's working, but you know that there's an element of it that's a bit longer term than what they would like. So it would have included even conversation kind of prompts and things that say, oh, so if you if we're going to do that, what do you want us to do with this other thing? And getting them to think about prioritizing stuff rather than just switching tack entirely because they want to be in control. So if you can say, okay, so we could do this crazy idea that your 14-year-old daughter's come up with, but what do you want to do about this stuff in the meantime? And almost get them to go, oh yeah, you're right, we should carry on. So let's go back to delegating the task of selling, because for a lot of entrepreneurs, I mean, that's a lot harder than even delegating client management. They're the rainmaker for their company. They're the, the primary breadwinner. And it can be very challenging to, and, and even risky in their own minds of delegating the process of selling. And, and a lot of selling comes down to EQ, right? And especially in a, in a service business where you're not, you can't you know, physically pick up and touch the product, right? You're, you're buying into someone's reputation and, and a, a promise and an idea. And that requires a lot of EQ in a lot of cases. But you were successful in, in getting other people to do some of the selling. So how did you do that? It started with a list of questions that someone would ask the prospect. And the goal of the first conversation was that they had sufficient answers to the questions to be able to write a proposal, because that's how we sold stuff. And then after they had that information, if they didn't know how to write the proposal straight away, that's what I would train someone to do, to take this information that's essentially filling out fields in a form and then turn that into a very personalized proposal where you hand it back to the client and they're like, wow, this is exactly what I want. And then to price it up as well. So every element of that process had, if this, if this then that's involved in it. So what I wanted my sales people to be able to do was here okay, so we're this type of company and we um, we have these goals and then be able to match that up to the social media platform that we would represent them on. There's only really a finite number of options. It's not like they have to do too much thinking around it. It's like, it's almost training them to notice patterns and then they are listening out for stuff and then they know what to sell. How did you deal with the the challenge of making your people sound like robots. I've had this experience where I give salespeople, you know, here's the script, here's the nine questions you got to ask, and then you can figure it all out. And they dutifully listen and they memorize the questions and they write them down and then they, they read them off or ask them and they sound like robots. They sound completely, um, you know, 
uh, inauthentic. And I wonder how you dealt with that. I think what I looked for when I was hiring salespeople was people that were genuinely interested in life and they had this enthusiasm for life that meant that when they were talking to people, they were interested and it, it didn't sound robotic. Because I think if you, you know, you could, you could ask a certain question like, what are your goals for this year or what social media platforms are you on at the moment? And you could, there's like a million different ways to ask that. But if you ask it in this really, I am interested in your business because we are excited to work with you type way, I think that enthusiasm comes through to the client. And then I think that it doesn't matter if they're reading off a list of questions, they're, they're personalizing it at the same time. So I think that comes down to the personality. And I think that that's what you screen for in the recruitment process. How do you do that? So with Haley in my team, I remember speaking to her on the phone the first time when she was applying for the role. And I just remember shutting my eyes and thinking, I'm a client, I'm a client, and imagining how I would feel if she if she was speaking to me. Would I feel excited about this company? Would I feel like, yes, this person gets it. They've got my best interests at heart. They're going to do the right thing. They're conscientious. And Maybe it is just a feeling, but I definitely got that in how she was speaking and how she was just coming across. I guess you could just ask someone quite tough questions and see how they just figure it out. Or you could ask them about stuff that is to do with their personality and how they look after other people and how they take care of other people. I think that's, um, I think that's how to make them not sound robotic when they're reading off a script or reading a list of questions. Got it. I want to go back to something you said very early in the conversation, which was when you put your Excel spreadsheet together, you put together a, like basically all the things you were doing. So prospect calls, client calls, you know, billing, et cetera. And you itemized you know, time you were spending on each. And then you went and said, okay, which of these tasks or projects can I automate? Which ones can I delegate to somebody else? How did you distinguish between whether it was something you could automate or something you needed to delegate or build a system around? I think I looked into what kind of software was available to do various different things. And then I weighed up the pros and cons of a human doing it over the software doing it. And so one of them, for example, was so invoicing. So I, I think that I created invoices in Microsoft Word, saved them as a PDF and manually emailed them to clients for far too long, for like an embarrassing amount of time. <laughs> yeah. And then of course I discovered zero and it was like, oh wow, there's actually a computer that does this for me. So that opened my eyes. And so of course invoicing just wasn't something that I was gonna get a human to do because it made no sense. It didn't, even, it didn't make sense that I was doing it. It had to be a system. So I think I went through that with everything else. I've seen some different email programs that, carbon, that kind of um, mail merged in almost lots of different terms. And I feel like I'd seen that go wrong more times than not. And so that was something that I thought, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make that a machine. That's gonna be a person. And so it was, I guess it was case by case when I was creating the actual systems, but it was it was making sure I was only getting a human to do something that a machine couldn't definitely do really well. And that was that would probably be different now in 2022 to 2014 at the time. There may be more things machines can do that humans were required before. 
yeah, loads more, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So let's talk about those tasks that you identified. You know what? I really need a human to do these. I, I can't automate them. I need to create some sort of standard operating procedure, as they talk about in the military, or SOP, in order for others to follow. So what was your initial process for creating these standard operating procedures? What did that look like? So our SAP documents were super simple. The whole thing was an Excel document and it had different tabs. And then each of these different tabs were exported into PDF pages and they were saved in folders. I think there was two folders. There was one that everyone in the team had and there was another that just the management team had. And then each one followed the same format. I think I actually had an SOP for creating SOPs because otherwise they get kind of messy. So it was very like, this is the process you follow. And so at the top, each one would have the like the title of the process. And this actually is more important than you think. And so for example, our client setup process was called client setup. It wasn't called client onboarding. It wasn't called customer sign up because what I wanted is for my team to have this language that we just all use, that we all knew there was no confusion. And it would help when searching the SOPs as well, because you're not searching for these random terms. It was like, this is how we created our language. And then underneath the title, it would have, it would have a description. So um, it was really clear what it covered. So invoicing is going to be different to direct debits, which is going to be different to expenses. They can't all go under this accounts description because it wouldn't make sense. So I wanted it to be super clear. And then underneath that, it was the purpose of that document and I thought it, it felt quite important to get everyone on the same page with why this document even existed. So going back to the one we mentioned earlier about how to open a client meeting, it was like so that our clients feel comfortable, so we make them feel relaxed, so that we can build up affinity and so that we can get, get a good relationship with them. That all went in the, in the purpose section. And then the rest of each of the SOPs was two columns and on the left it was the kind of the stage of the process and then on the right-hand column, it was all the detail of what that stage involved. And it was very, very nuanced. If, if someone had to go to a website, it would be click here, click there, do this. If this, then that for everything I could think of or everything the person who put the process document together could think of. Because I figured if there wasn't an answer, it would be me who got asked about it. So I wanted to just cover every single eventuality. And then also in each of the SOPs, there was additional information so logins or hex colors or those little things that someone might need just to make sure that they had everything they needed from that document and my goal was that someone who had no knowledge of the company no experience at all could pick up this document and could follow that process to a really good standard or to the standard that we wanted them to do it to how did you saw off the medium or the balance between giving too much detail and contemplating every possible machination and you know uh combination of outcomes versus being too simplistic and and not providing enough detail because i think a lot of people struggle with that they sit down and start writing an sop and they get kind of spinning in this rat hole of oh i've got to contemplate for that or i've got to think about that and what if the client says this and and they end up having this this completely uh, inaccessible, you know, 2000 word document. So how did you find a way to 
at the time, I don't know if I did, and I probably was verbose and it probably didn't really work out at first. But over time, I did things like it was color-coded or certain lines were emboldened. And so if someone really has grasped it from that first line that's in bold, they probably don't need to read the rest of it, but it's there if they need it. So it was just ways of laying out each document in a better way. Almost like you think about just creating a website. So you're gonna put, some things are gonna be H1, some things are gonna be H3, some things are gonna be colored and jump out. I was thinking about it like that. So it caters for someone who just needs an overview. But then if someone does want more of the detail, it's there at the same time, but it doesn't overwhelm someone with all that information if they don't feel like they need it. Got it. I get using fonts, sizes, and bold versus unbold. How did you use colors? Like what was your application of colors? Hmm, I think that I feel like red was involved sometimes because red is warning. So it's like, if you want to put warnings in place for certain things, like warning, don't say this there or don't do this or whatever, whatever it might be. And then we might just use colors as a highlight to the specific, the kind of top level information. I'm reading a book at the moment um, that's got different, it's like got different principles, but it's got top level. And then if you agree, or if you want to go further into it, it's got, okay, carry on reading. And now there's this smaller header. And then if you want even more detail and all the, all the gritty details, that's when you can go down to this third level. So I think that was how we did our SOPs pretty much. What did you learn about writing SOPs throughout over time? Like I'm sure the first one, if we referred back to it now, would be pretty clunky relative to the yes. most, you know, the latest one that you did. What what was the big learning that you uh, you took away from writing them that you improved upon? Probably two main things. The first one was it felt important that the person who was responsible for the process wrote the SOP because I didn't actually want to write it myself and then hand it to someone. I wanted to train someone else in how to do something and get them to write the SOP from their understanding. And I found that that helped people take ownership over their work rather than just feel like they were just a cog in a wheel following instructions, which wasn't the case. And then the second thing is that- That's a key point, by the way, Jody. I want to underline what you just said in case people didn't- glossed over it. I think this is a critical point because the temptation, I think, is entrepreneurs, we're kind of control freaks. We think we know how to do everything in our own companies, which is pretty natural, right? We probably have done it a thousand times, but you just said something that I think is really important, which is you really want the person responsible for the task creating the SOP because it's from there, they can express it in their own words. And you can verify that they understand the way to do it, but it's so much more important that they write it than than you sort of top down. So I I love this point, I'm glad. You mentioned there were two things that that you learned in the process. Yeah, I think the second one was the first version of the SOP wasn't actually that important. It didn't have to to be perfect. I think that it was more important that it existed because once it existed, there was a default way of doing something. And I was super open to everything being changed because it's like, if you've got a better way of doing something, you know, suggest it, bring it to the table. And there was, um, and we often did bring things to the table and talk about if they should be different and then agree on it and then and then edit it. But if you don't have the document to start with, then you're just all guessing and all throwing examples around. Whereas it had to be like, this is the default. If you want to change this, that's totally fine, but come forward with the case and have a really good reason for doing so. So I guess 
it just took pressure off the first version being perfect. How did you deal with permissions? Was everybody able to edit the documents as they saw fit or were they uneditable? They were uneditable. Joanna, who was my um, kind of company leader, she was just, she was like the boss of everything. She, she ran everything. She had editable version, editable version. She had final say. I would even run something by her if, if I wanted to change something because she was just running all that stuff. So, um, but then if at the same time, if we wanted someone else to make one, we would, they would make it from scratch. They would use the template. There was a, there was a document for them to do. And then if someone wanted to edit one, then we probably would have worked out a way of giving them an editable version. But what we preferred is for them to say, okay, this is the line that I've seen, but I actually think it should say this, or this is what I've been doing and this is why, and get them to present their case and then get Joanna to change it. Got it. How did you get people to use them? Because, you know, I, I can tell you that I've spoken to more than a few founders who have taken all the time to create these standard operating procedures, writing them all down, weeks of their time, only to have them sit in a binder that never gets referenced, a physical binder. <laughs> more recently, obviously, a, a, a digital folder, a Google Drive that nobody accesses so you spend all the time doing it but then nobody actually references them back so how did you get them to, your employees to kind of bed in and adopt these standard operating procedures with difficulty but the main difficulty <laughs> was in me not jumping in with the answer that was the hardest thing so i made it my policy that if i knew the answer to a question was in an sop i did not answer it I would just, I would patiently refer back to the manual again and again. I would remind my people that there was an answer there and they just had to find it. And um, Joanna also did this. And I guess over time it became a bit of a, maybe it was a bit of a game. It was like, oh, I'm sure that question's in the manual. Oh, have, have you not checked the manual? And then they're like, oh no. And then it's like, oh, okay, just check the manual. And then it's no big deal. And, and really what I found is it developed quite resourceful people who actually wanted to check the manual first because they didn't want to bring a question forward and, you know, disturb other people when they could have just found it out themselves. So I think that came from hiring people who put pride in doing, doing things for themselves. But I think it also came from us focusing on the long term of this and not just the short term of, oh, I could just answer that, but thinking, no, this is better in the long term. We should let them work it out. Well, another thing that I specifically did was I was, un I was intentionally unavailable so especially towards the, in the last few years of having my agency, I had specific office hours and it was like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 8am to 12pm. I was, I was in the office, I was available, I was around, but apart from that, I wasn't. So if someone wanted the answer from me for something, then they could not get it at that time. And knowing that I, I rewarded the behavior that I wanted to see. And so I would rather someone check the manual had a think, took action, and then made the wrong decision, then just hung around waiting for me and didn't do anything. So we would always try and encourage people to think and to take action rather than just waiting to ask someone. And maybe we got burnt a few times from doing that, but overall, I think it developed better team members who took more ownership over their decisions. Great stuff. You know, it's funny, I, I was... Um... I was asked to give a speech. This goes back, I, I want to say 10 years. It may not have been that long ago. It was a while ago to 
like the graphic designers society in America. I have no idea what the industry group is called, but it's effectively graphic design agencies, marketing agencies that are part of this industry group. And they talk about industry, you know, things that, that affect the industry. And they had me come to their annual conference and I gave my built to sell speech. This is shortly after the, the, the publication of the book. And I can remember them all looking really quite distracted and not happy. And, and finally someone raised their hand and said, you know, John, I, I kind of, hear what you're saying it it feels like you're trying to make us all into mcdonald's franchises and he went on to sort of describe that what they do is creative and and in a graphic design studio it's the opposite of systematizing and Mm -hmm. creating you know processes we 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 create, and so everything you're saying is 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 against or is an athema to kind of who we are as as people and what our industry stands for. And I, <laughs> needless to say, the speech did not go well. I was not asked back, but but I do remember that and really not rebutting his objection or his criticism well at the time. I was like, like I, I was sort of just caught you know off guard, and I'd be curious. To know how you would react to someone who is like, yeah, but Jody, like what we do is so creative. And if this yeah. is not just creative industries. I think lawyers would say the same thing. You can't possibly systematize the practice of law or, or architects or any really service or professional service. I, I get this sort of pushback saying, well, you don't really understand what it means to be you know, a service business. What, how would you react to that? <laughs> oh, I have so many things to say about this. <laughs> so firstly, I think that... There is a time and a place for creativity and it's all the time, but it's within parameters because at the end of the day, we're companies, we're commercial enterprises and we're trying to sustain ourselves. So if you just focus on creativity and didn't have any processes in place, your clients wouldn't get reported to, you wouldn't collect money, you wouldn't like call them in the right time, you just wouldn't have a business. You'd, we'd just all be messing around updating Facebook statuses and it wouldn't actually be a company, it would just be just wasting time. So I feel like the systems and the processes allows for more of the creativity because it takes care of the stuff that's just the admin that wouldn't get done otherwise. And I think that's important. And I don't think we're trying to take away creativity at all. I think we're trying to allow for more of it. I like, I quite like the um, maker and manager analogy and how you've got different parts mm. of your brain almost that think about doing those things. And so if you could have systems in place that mean that firstly stuff's automated, so you have more free time for the creative stuff anyway. But secondly, you know that you do reports on the first Wednesday of each month then you do this on these days but then the rest of the time you can be that maker I think that's really freeing but it also means that you have a business at the end of it rather than just being kind of what's it called like like starving artists and um, and then another yeah I think this is such an important point yeah because because if you have a a playbook a set of you know a set of instructions to to go by then that part of your brain that is that is being you know chewed through the the manager part of your brain, making sure okay, did I do it the right way and did I get it done and I do all the thing. Like if you free that up and know that you can just put that part of your mind on autopilot, then it does free up some cycles in your brain to to be more creative. I, I agree with you 100. percent 
So another thing that I get asked quite a bit about the topic of systemizing is when it's a business owner who is also an artist in some way. So there's something that they do that is actually super integral to the business and no, they cannot delegate that. And so what I would say to that is their job is to find out what that is and find out what that isn't and remove everything that it isn't. So one example is imagine that someone's this incredible... I don't know, painter. And the entire business is based on this person's paintings getting seen in galleries and getting sold around the world. So that person needs to paint. They don't need to speak to the gallery owners. They don't need to set up their easel. They don't need to wash their paintbrushes. They don't need to do all this stuff. But they, their ego might tell them that they need to do that stuff because they're like, well, I'm the artist. But actually, there's such a small amount of stuff that they actually need to do. So I really like the idea of this, this painter or just read kind of artist because it could be anything rocking up, doing the thing that only they can do, and then having other people that they really trust take care of everything else. And I think if you actually drill down to it, there's very little that actually only you as the business owner could do. And that's definitely what I found. Some people get squeamish about that, though, because they say, well, great leaders don't delegate something they wouldn't be willing to do themselves. And great leaders lead by example. Great leaders lead from the front. You've heard all these analogies before, these cliches, and it's the idea that you know great leaders are in the trenches with their employees and they're not just sitting on a, a pedestal and, and barking out instructions from on high. And yeah. I and I and I hear what you're saying, but I think some people would be like, yeah, but that's not my management style. That's not what I believe leadership looks like. How would you respond to that? I think that it's, it's only really delegating things that you have already done, but you've realized that in order to help the company grow further, which provides progression for your team members, you have to relinquish control of some of the stuff and therefore you're going to train other people to do it. I think if you find the right people and put them in charge, like Joanna was a perfect example of this and Carol Haley, like my salespeople, they didn't, they didn't want me to do the sales. They didn't want me to run the meetings because they had their way of doing it that they were really happy with. And if I got involved in sales, maybe I'd be promising all these things and I'd be getting too enthusiastic. And they're like, no, we want to stick to this process. We want to create the proposal our way. So over time, I was really happy that it became their process and that they didn't want me to do it because they'd established their way they knew it worked and they wanted to just get on and do their job so I think it's about your team not thinking oh I'm being delegated something just so someone else doesn't have to do it but it's them thinking and believing I'm a person who was like born to do this I'm gonna I'm gonna smash this spreadsheet I'm gonna do amazing at this task because I know that I can and that's what I'm here to do and I'm proud of that how did you handle grumpy clients who said, look, Jody, I appreciate you have a process. I appreciate you have a system, but I don't want to follow your system. I want to do it my way. And I know that you have these three questions I'm supposed to answer, but I'm not going to do it because I want to go over here and do it my way. I'm the client. I'm paying the bill. I'm doing it my way. Did you, did you, re, did you ever have clients who sort of push back on, on following the system? And how did you handle it if you did the only one that really springs to mind is paying by direct debit. So we just had a GoCardless setup that came as part of the client setup email and someone would sign up to GoCardless and that's it, they would do it. 
And yeah, we had a few that said, no, I don't want to do that. And especially with our bigger clients, they they wouldn't have signed up to our direct debit. We invoiced them. But what I found is that the systems took care of 80%. And then maybe there are a few nuances, but they became fewer and fewer over time. And then we just developed new systems for taking care of the rest of it. So I guess each time someone wants something case by case, it's like, well, is this because our systems aren't good enough or do they genuinely want something different? Or actually, do they are they just explaining what they want in a way that makes it sound like it's not part of an existing process, but actually it is. So it was it was kind of being interested in it and then digging into it and then working out how we could change our process so that it didn't become a case-by-case kind of thing. It became a new process. Walk me through the results, the impact of, of creating these standard operating procedures and these systems inside your business. Like paint for listeners a before and after picture for the the skeptic who's like, is this really worth the time, Jody? I mean, this sounds like a lot of work. I'm a busy person. I don't have time for all this systems nonsense. Make the case for that listener who is hesitant to do some of this stuff. Like give me the before and the after. Before... I was in the execute phase of my business, wearing all the hats, running around like crazy, making a lot of money, but having no time at all. And with a team who felt like they were all extensions of me rather than their own people in charge of their own stuff. Systemizing at first didn't feel like an easy thing to do. It felt like an investment. It's, I don't think systemizing ever, is ever going to make you money and it probably is going to cost you money and it certainly cost me money because it's hiring people and it's um, using different software. But I saw it as this project that once I did it, it would be out of the way, my time would be freed up and the maintenance mode of it would be much easier and that's what happened. Part of the systemizing process came with new benefits and one of those was that the people who were now running the processes saw them with fresh eyes. It wasn't just me going, oh, well, this is how we do that. And this is how we've always done it, being too busy to look at it anew. It was someone going, well, hang on. I know we always done it this way, but actually our clients want this and I want to change it. And now they're empowered to change it. And one example of that was how we did our marketing and coming up with new ideas for marketing because that just fell into my lap and maybe each Maybe every two weeks, every month or so, I would think, oh, maybe we should do something else other than networking. But I didn't do it because I was just on this, I was on a roll with going to events and doing all that stuff. But as soon as I gave someone else the weekly thing of have a look and see what else we could do with marketing, they saw it as their mission to make something come from it. So it was actually someone else in my team who said, I want to check out Google Ads. They set up a campaign. They said, let me just try it out. And we got a new client within the week from their test. And then it made a lot of sense to put more budget into that. And by the end of the agency, when I sold, it was like Google Ads was responsible for about 30% of our new clients. So I wouldn't have discovered that on my own because I was too busy, but giving it to someone else meant that we grew more. What role did the standard operating procedures in your employee manual play in the sale of your company? I think it was really big. I think one of the reasons I was able to hand over my company in two weeks rather than three to five years was because 
I wasn't the manual. The manual was the manual. So, so every answer that needed answering, every question that needed answering was there rather than it being, it being me. And I almost feel like sometimes in earnouts, it can feel like the new buyer wants the owner of the company there as like an insurance kind of thing, like just in case there's anything that they can't answer. And the manual took care of like 80% of the of the things that might be asked and the team looked after the rest of them. So I think it helped massively with me not needing an earn out. Yeah, I, I think, and if folks want to hear more about that, they should definitely listen to our first interview because you did a great job of of describing the first offer you got where the acquirer was looking for an air and out and you're like, but that's not, <laughs> that's not what I am signing up for. And then you went to uh, the process of getting a second buyer who, yeah, uh, you know, made an all cash offer. You were out in two weeks and it was an incredible exit. Again, a very very unusual for a marketing services business, but a testament to the work that you did in this area. So I think that's, it's amazing. The first offer that we got from the buyer that bought us, that ended up buying us, did include an earn out, but that's where I had an open conversation with them and said, hang on, what do you want me to do in this time period? And they said, well, they, they, they weren't really sure at first, but then they said, oh, maybe, you know, maybe the sales, maybe look after the team, maybe do this and maybe do that. And that's when I said, hang on, I don't, I don't do that now. So you want me to go back a step? You want me to get back involved and do this, even though it's all taken care of by other people? And then they could see it didn't make sense. So I, it wasn't even me trying to say, no, I want to get out. It was me saying, I genuinely don't understand. And then they got it. Yeah. Yeah, really well, really well said. And and frankly, I mean, I'm sure you, you're a great salesperson, but at that point in the process, you being out of it as long as you had been, your employees may have been better at it than, than you would have been if you were asked to go back in time and, and play that role. So yeah, it's amazing. And I, I, uh, I appreciate you sharing the story and some of the tips and going deeper on this process, uh, you know, stuff, because I think it's important for folks. Um, I'd be remiss in letting you go before I ask you about the new book. Uh, it's called 10 Year Career. And I have, to, uh, I have to tell you, when I first saw the title, it reminded me of a blog post I wrote, uh, oh gosh, a long time ago, maybe 13 or 14 years ago, called Life in 10 Year Chunks. Yes. And it was about, the the beauty of entrepreneurship being that you get to to have these sort of episodic career where you can do a business over 10 years and then you can take a sabbatical or run around the world and then you can do it again which is not a luxury that you have when you are uh in 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 sort of a career track where you're you know working for the next rung on the ladder so tell me about 10 year career what what is it about and 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 give me the give me the the overview well, firstly, John, that's awesome because I love that you wrote that blog post because that's very much in line with the book. I love the idea of life in 10-year chunks. A career doesn't have to take up 40, 50, 60 years. You can do the entire thing in 10 years if you want to. And I think the the world is geared up to support people to, who, who do want to do that. And I guess that's kind of what I did because I started the agency at 22, sold it at 32, and then was like, huh career could be done now what's next and then it frees up this whole world of being I don't know an astronaut a horse rider whatever you want to do it doesn't doesn't matter you can just reinvent yourself so the book 
introduces a framework, the 10-year career framework that goes through execute, systemize, scrutinize, and exit, which I think is really useful as an antidote to bad advice and helps people know what to do at each stage of their journey and know when they should be hustling hard and know when they should be sitting back and thinking about it and know when they should be creating SOPs or when they should just be doing things that don't scale. And it starts by delving into all the ways that we are trained out of thinking for ourselves. And there are so many ways. And then Mm. it goes through a lot of mindset things, a lot of sales things, a lot of um, business things in general, a lot of lifestyle design. This is all around how do you run a business that doesn't run you? How do you build a business to sell, but at the same time, enjoy your life while doing it? So it's kind of all packed in there. And it's got some of my story. It's got some stories from other business owners who've done their whole thing in 10 years. And yeah, it's got really good feedback so far. So I'm excited for everyone to read it. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I mean, you know, technology has enabled some of these things. Like I think back to to some of the businesses like, you know, in our parents' generation or my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation. I mean, the, you know, large businesses were, you know, 100-year-old companies and they were massive manufacturing businesses. They were hugely capitalized and, you know, um, just massive entities. And, and then along comes, you know, our uh, we're different generations, but I would say modern generation where, you know, you got Instagram that goes to whatever the moon in, in a matter of a decade, you, you've got Tesla. I don't think is much more than a decade or maybe it's 15 years old, but these are, these are massive in the case of Tesla, a trillion dollar company in a decade or, or so, you know, and it's, uh, it's amazing what can be started in a short amount of time, leveraging technology as well. Uh, I know that, you know, the book goes much more beyond beyond that concept, but I think it's um, it, it's it's amazing that we can we can create these businesses that become meaningful enterprises in a short amount of time. Yeah, and you don't need to be in your twenties when you start it. You could be any age when you start your ten year career. But yeah, the world is set up in such a way that you can you could you could start and finish in ten years, no matter how old you are at the start or where you are now. And it's one of the great luxuries of a life of entrepreneurship because there are obviously a lot of downsides in choosing entrepreneurship as a career, right? No pension, no health benefits, no stability. Like there's lots of downsides. But if I could articulate the one upside, I think it's this concept or one of the many upsides, but I think it's, it's, it's pretty high up there. This concept that you can step off the career ladder and you don't lose your spot in line. Right. Yeah. You can create yeah. a business, sell it, and then go do something else. And you're no further behind than if you were, you know, if you work at a law firm and you all of a sudden rock up and say, yeah, I'm going to take a couple of years off. Well, say goodbye to partnership, right? You're not going to become a senior partner in that law firm if you screw off for two years. It just isn't, that's just not the way it works. Sometimes I think of it in terms of cashing your chips. So if I took a job and I agreed to be paid a certain amount for a certain number of hours, I would see that as me saying, yes, this is what I am worth. Whereas I feel like at the moment, my chips are, I don't know what my chips are worth, but it could be like billions. And there's only one way to find out and that's not to cash them. So you're kind of leaving chips on the table in order to back yourself to make them as big as possible rather than take what someone else is going to give you. And that's a really exciting prospect for for me and for, I guess, all, all of us entrepreneurs. 
and probably a great way to leave our interview. The book is called 10 Year Career out in the UK now. It will be out in the US in November, I believe. Yes. And uh, you can just Google 10 Year Career and find Jody as well. Uh, this has been really fun. This is uh, the first of maybe a few more second round interviews, and I really appreciate you being uh, a guinea pig for that. So thanks for doing this, Jody. Thank you, John. It's, yeah, it's been great. Thank you for having me. And that is it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed John's conversation today with Jody Cook. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, along with resources I hope you find helpful on systems, head over to the show notes page, which can be found at builttosell.com. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support the show, you can actually leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps grow the show and bring it to a new audience base and individuals just like yourself. If you know of someone who would be a great guest right here on Built to Sell Radio, you can actually nominate them. You can head over to builttosell.com slash nominate, where there you'll have the opportunity to either nominate someone else or yourself to be a guest right here on the show with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week. 